So um, I'm Tom Bartolet and I'm here to talk about Noble Ape and also some of the stuff that's going on with Biota. And we have a we have a quality crowd here, so I'd like to thank the folks who turned up. I wanted to start by giving some background uh, to my kind of development history and some indicationally eclectic bits of software that came together to develop Noble Ape. I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the fantasy games in 1984, but I have a background in terms of writing landscape visualization. This is uh, vector landscapes, line-based landscapes, and in particular, natural landscapes, landscapes with water, trees, and all built up from, from lines initially. Um, I wrote the SchmuckQuest series of games with a friend of mine, Darren Bolton, in Australia, and as I was pulling these slides together, I found the original uh, SchmuckQuest three-and-a-half-inch disc. This was a similar to the Sierra-style games. Do you remember the Sierra games uh, in terms of text and graphics? But it was released free on the local bulletin board systems and um, had quite a fan base in Australia, actually. I had a friend who ran a bulletin board, uh, and he was on the, the system one time while I was over, uh, and there was quite a fan base. A fellow got online and said, oh, well, we have a folk band, and we will, we'd be willing to perform uh, at any function that you nominate because of your writing of schmuck quest. So that kind of continued um, through the early 90s. I also wrote antiviral software, and when you think about antiviral software, computer antiviral software, the linking with Noble Ape is with regards to heuristic analysis. So taking the ideas, I was um, dealing with polymorphic viruses, these kind of early emergent viruses in 92, 93 timeframe, um, and heuristic analysis really led into the agar and petri dish simulations um, in terms of means of, of seeing uh, viral growth uh, over networks uh, and the kind of problems that occurred in terms of detection. I also uh, developed some compilers, uh, polymorphic compilers, uh, specific compilers. Later on, uh, 2001, I wrote a C compiler for Ericsson, which was one of the few overlaps between my after-hours development uh, and the stuff that I did uh, back in this time period. And then in 96, and I was 19 in 96, so you can do the math, uh, Noble Ape was developed, and this really brought together a lot of the ideas. But I wanted to talk a little bit about fantasy games and the kind of background of uh, writing your own fantasy games from the early 80s. This really was stuff that obviously had been uh, developed and discussed on, on high-level computers, but this came out in a kind of pamphlet booklet. I think it was about 64 pages. I didn't actually own this until 2005. This copy, uh, the copy that I inspired me back in the, in the mid-80s, uh, I borrowed from a friend. But something really interesting here, C64, VIC-20, uh, BBC Spectrum, uh, well, Spectrum BBC Microcomputer, wide variety of different microcomputers uh, that were all detailed in this book. But the background to that was really strong narrative, so this idea of creating fantasy environments that had a very strong narrative, the idea that you were creating a sustainable simulation space that contained game dynamics, really created a simulated world, but, and also included some graphics component. And the interesting thing about this in terms of talking about generations of artificial life developers, the artificial life developers of my generation, people like uh, Dave Kerr, for example, in Canada, we all grew up with these kind of books. So perhaps earlier artificial life developers used Dawkins and these kind of things in terms of their inspiration. But this was an inspiration for me. Like I said, I borrowed the book for a period of time, thumbed through it with a, uh, it was a friend of mine's copy. But as I was kind of bringing together the books that were important in mobile app development, I, I purchased this one on ABE Books to give a sense of what was in it. Uh, it contained basically a description of, of fantasy characters and creating a simulated dungeon environment 
And this really captivated me at the time. I wrote my own uh, kind of dungeon simulator with the various characters that went through. In terms of the time frame, I think I wrote this on an early Mac, like probably an original series Mac, um, probably in Quick Basic initially and then into Turbo Pascal. So even at this stage, the computer systems that I was using were more modern than the book was originally written for. But just the idea of having a kind of rich simulated environment that a player character wandered through. And in terms of coding discipline, this is actually taken out of the book um, here in Basic, obviously. But these various stars and other things related to uh, specific uh, platforms, I want to call them, but microcomputers specifically. So this stuff was associated with perhaps the VIC-20, and this was associated with the Commodore 64. I didn't own a computer at home until I was about 15, 16. My coding was all done in these kind of books written out uh, in longhand that I would take into the local university and program. And in terms of the whole multi-platform nature of Noble Ape, this was really critical early on. I didn't know whether I'd be sitting in front of a Mac or a DOS computer or some kind of mainframe system. So basically, I would write these code books. And unfortunately, these code books don't persist. So I'm, I'm using an example here from the Write Your Own Fantasy programs, but very much in this line. In fact, um, when I was about 14, 15, I took a bus trip with the school into central Australia. And I wrote a code book for drawing the various landscapes that I saw just in code. And I got sick, I got a, a bronchitis and was put in a, um, a country hospital, basically, while the remaining classmates went on. And I sent the code book back to a friend of mine in, in Canberra, Australia, who coded in uh, the, the code that I had written together with his father. And when I got back, I went to Adelaide there, my grandparents were in Adelaide, stayed with them, and got a call from this fellow describing these landscapes, which I had only written in code in this kind of style, uh, which he had actually compiled, I think it was probably Turbo Pascal at the time, uh, on probably some Hercules or maybe early VGA monitor. And he was describing these landforms and saying, well, what are these floating disks? And I said, oh, well, you know, I put a UFO simulator in there as well to make it slightly more interesting. So you had the Australian landscape and kind of vector graphics with these UFOs that flew around and fired at each other. But this was all written in code. It was all handwritten in code in terms of not actually having access to computers or not knowing what kind of computer I would have access to. And really that informed a lot of the early Noble Ape development. So anyway, the Noble Ape simulation was launched in 1996, and here we see some of the early vector graphics in monochrome. I think this is the early Mac version. Uh, but it was designed to bring together all the elements of the software that I'd developed to date in terms of the antiviral software, strong narrative software. I basically had a lot of the stuff lying around, like the landscapes, and we'll get into the cognitive simulation a bit. So I had all these various components lying around, but in Malaysia in particular, I was really struck by the uh, eight populations, the monkey populations, the orangutans, and their life in proximity to the human populations, and kind of anthropomorphic divide, lots of issues associated with that. So I launched the simulation in Malaysia. It looked very similar to this. Uh, and then I returned to Australia and started writing the original manuals, which I wrote over a kind of four-month period that outlined the philosophy and the background uh, to the Noble Ape development, some of the stuff that I wanted to do with the cognitive simulation, uh, abstract uh, desires of the Noble Apes, and these kind of things, to try and set the stage both in terms of the philosophy and the biology uh, that was in the Noble Ape simulation. So when you think of the Noble Ape simulation, and this again is another early graphics, um, it really is a collection of simulations. There is a landscape simulation, weather simulation, the cognitive simulation, which is the, the way the noble apes as, as intelligent agents in a simulated environment uh, walk over the landscape, and a, a biological simulation. 
Uh, there's also ApeScript as well. We'll talk about ApeScript in a little bit. But um, the early... Um, Landscape simulation was actually uh, Fourier transforms. These are just interlocking sine waves that created the underlying environment. This is obviously a contour map with water, small number of islands and a small collection of noble apes. And you can see elements that persist to this day, like that's a female noble ape and the, uh, the weather. And the other elements basically have continued on through the simulation. So the history of the landscape simulation originally was with the... Um, the interlocking sine waves, but then I wanted to create a, a far richer environment. And here's, um, I only have uh, monochrome versions of this that persist to this day. I think I passed a version of this to you, Jeffrey, uh, for your uh, sphere uh, glider programming. But what we have here is an underlying, this again is the same kind of contour map that you saw previously. There was a full color version that I demoed uh, for uh, the ID software guy, John Romero, actually, um, through one of Wozniak's startups. So there was a full-color version, but I only have the monochrome version. So what we have here is water, underlying contour maps, and more importantly, like a weather simulation that goes around the outside. So I took the circa 2000 weather and uh, planet Noble Ape uh, landscape generation, which is what's used in the Noble Ape simulation currently, but it's basically, the landscape is a, a 2D binary division which refines. It starts with very high points and kind of two-by-two uh, two blocky and then refines into smaller sections with a 45-degree rotation for every other level. So it progressively rotates back, rotates back and refines uh, with rounding over the entire landscape. I think the future of the landscapes, obviously they have to get bigger and certainly my anticipation is within the next couple of months. The landscape's currently at um, 256 by 256 and it will move to probably 1024 initially and then also the potential for distributed landscapes. So we'll get into more uh, on that later on but the idea of actually having multiple landscapes on multiple different machines all being rendered and all kind of intercommunicating uh, is, is coming up in the, in the near future. So the weather simulation, um, again, was there was a link between the weather simulation and the cognitive simulation initially, but taking from this planet Noble 8 development, the idea of the weather simulation is that you almost have like a glass ceiling and then you have the landscape going underneath and it's the pressurised water vapour in air moving through uh, the landscape. So at points of high pressure, basically, you have cloud formations in the water-air um, mixture. And then at even higher pressure, you have rainfall. Um, and currently, because of the processing involved, this is done at half the resolution of the landscape. But I anticipate basically moving that to, to the full landscape. And another interesting... Uh, so, okay, so I've covered that. So how, how realistic is it's realistic enough. The issue um, here, these are the slides that I have for Intel that I've removed here, in fact, going through the actual math. Um, but there's a scalar slip coefficient that represents, um, represents um, some of the 2D calculus elements, which was done to optimise. And there's a kind of counter slip, which is calculated in real time for the pressure. So in terms of actually creating a relatively realistic uh, weather map, it's pretty good. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the future developments of the weather. So as I mentioned, moving uh, to the resolution of the landscape, obviously being much larger. An addition that Bob Mottram uh, did, which I may have been on the previous slide, maybe on the slide, was an addition of wind. Um, he added both wind and tides um, into the current simulation. So the Noble Oak side, 
when the no-lates have size, there'll be a wind chill factor associated with the wind, and this will they'll move into the vegetation for shelter. I'm also... With the tides, does that uh, imply that you have a moon? The current tides does. Um, my interest in the future is actually creating, just through the pressure differential, tides from that. So the idea currently is there is a moon-like effect in, in Bob Bottrom's implementation of the tides, but I would like the water to act as a liquid in the weather simulation. So you'll actually have, I suppose, uh, effects of the water going into the air and also uh, effects of basically the air pressure moving the water and forming, forming currents and tides. So I think there are ways of simulating it without the need for a moon, just based on the pressure effects and... Ultimately, I want to move it back to a kind of planet noble ape methodology where there will be a moon effect as well. Uh, but as it is currently, it will just be the air pressure effects creating the, creating the tides. Bob Bottrom currently has a time cycling, which is almost like a kind of pseudo-moon effect on the tides. So there is a tide implementation currently, but my interest is getting the tides far more interconnected with the weather simulation. So just to understand the picture, you have a planet with continents, you have apes... Populated in the continents, only apes. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have a biological simulation as well. So the biological simulation covers a variety of different kinds of birds, uh, small animals, insects, and plants as well. We'll talk about the biological simulation in a couple of slides. Um, also, um, and we'll talk about this in a couple of slides. Characteristic behavior. So if something happened, they in some probability do that? Or well, there are, there are genetic weightings associated with that. We'll talk about, we'll talk about the in, in a couple of slides. So uh, the biological simulation in Noble Ape is based on quantum mechanics. It's the idea that the landscape is like the primary operator and then the um, areas uh, like surface area, height... Uh, water probability, the moving sunlight and the total sunlight all act as kind of combinatory either additive or subtractive operators in the biology. So you can create all the plant and animal species um, locally. It's, it's the idea basically that the biology only exists where the apes are. So rather than computing an entire biological system, because the computational complexity associated with that, we're talking kind of circa 96, 97 processing, the biology only exists as the apes move. But this is a C, this is an RGB map of the plant type showing just the diversity of plants basically over the island. So you're only re uh, representing the biology in like a certain radius? No, no, no. The, the notion of operators in quantum mechanics implies basically that it exists everywhere, but you only survey that at the point where the ape is. So the idea is that, yes, this is an entire, as I've done here, this is a scan of the entire simulation, but you're not calculating the biological interactions at every place. They just collapse, basically, where the apes wander. Okay. So... If the ape moves to another location, will it be... Uh, will you take into consideration all the history of the biological... Uh, so... Um, we'll get to this fellow called Bob Mottram, who's implemented a version of biological simulation that does that. The idea, the, the noble ape exists, each of, these, each of these pixels represents about 50 metres by 50 metres worth of simulated biology. So the idea that the noble ape interaction with the simulated biology is relatively minor 
Uh, Bob Ultram worked on the fact that there were vastly more noble apes and their effects on the biology were greater in terms of eating all the berries and these kind of things, and that produced a different kind of biological simulation. My concern with regards to that is just due to scalability, and as we increase the size, the ability to do these kind of calculations over a large scale is difficult. So when I'm saying that I'm only counting the biology at a particular point, it's just really the noble ape interrogates the point, it goes through the operators and gives the values associated um, with with the specific point. Obviously, the biology effectively exists everywhere in terms of interrogation, but in terms of mathematical calculation, it only exists at the point where the apes are interrogating it. So, like I said, area, height, water, moving sunlight, total sunlight, and Bob Mottram has introduced the salt, um, which creates seaweed and sand. Um, like I said, the biological uh, elements are a combination of the operators. So, in the future, and this comes through an earlier conversation that I was having with Jeffrey, there will be a lot more species in the biological simulation. Talking about what I was describing in terms of the 50 metre by 50 metre resolution, when we move it down to the ape-like level, we're looking at fractal algorithms to actually define where the plants and the animals are specifically. So moving from this quantum mechanics aspect to something which is very well defined, particularly if we have detailed resolution graphics out. So this is the early test that Bob Mottram did uh, in terms of small localised fractals here showing uh, trees, grass, bushes, uh, beach, rock pools and seaweed with the various elements with the view that these are zoomable components where it is actually resolved down to uh, certainly the Noble Ape resolution or the Noble Ape drawing resolution. Uh, this is still early days yet, but I think... The areas that aren't covered is water? The areas that don't have any biology? Uh, there's a seaweed overlap, which is the water too, so this is a difficult... So there's no like, deserts on the land? Um, there, are, there, is, there is sand and beaches, which is the potential for deserts, and there is also kind of um, what I would call like a grassland, which is basically minimal vegetation. So there's potential for all these things through the biological simulation. Um, but anyway, so that's the, the simulation future. And like I said, this is going to happen in the near future, and particularly with regards to the landscape resolution increase as well. Um, and also really finding new operators. So out of the operators described previously, some of these come, obviously, area, height, water come from land operators. Moving sunlight and total sunlight now come from the weather simulation. They originally were just calculated based on a planetary simulation of a rotating sun, but now the, the weather operators are part of that, and the salt is based directly on the tidal simulation. So the cognitive simulation uh, was originally two-dimensional. Um, it was inspired by a lot of my agar and petri dish simulation, and I wrote about this recently in a book called Nature Inspired Informatics, and I'm more than happy to circulate the chapter if you're interested. But it details basically taking these very simple agar and petri dish simulations and looking at how the bacterial growth could be used to describe information transfer. So it's almost like a very rich contextualised neural network but it, in fact, is, is, is quite a bit more detailed. Um, it's now moved into uh, three dimensions, uh, 32 by 32 by 32 cell um, cube. Certainly, Rick and, and people uh, at Apple have uh, spent a lot of time optimising that particular um, mathematics, so it's, it's probably uh, familiar to, to Rick. But it's the idea that there are um, two competing uh, elements. There's the desire which relates to a, a spatial delta, and there's the fear, which is a time delta. And it's the idea that the apes have kind of refining desires which are reinforced over time, and fear is a very reactive property. 
So certainly early on, and this came from the fantasy game stuff, mapping mathematical things onto very distinct pieces of terminology in order to describe it to, to non-mathematical folk was very important. And these two things are in, in constant competition, but they, they create the noble ape cognitive simulation. So the aims for the cognitive simulation in the future, it's currently very underutilised. I mean, obviously, um, Intel now primarily and occasionally folks at Apple uh, use it for various processor optimization, but I'd like to use it a lot more and also have the idea of kind of scaled brains. So the Noble Apes 32 by 32, I'd like to move to 64 by 64, maybe even 128 by 128, much larger kind of richer um, cognitive simulations. And then potentially the introduction of the, the fierce felines, a kind of feral cat population that preyed on the Noble Apes, perhaps predatorial birds with slightly smaller cognitive simulations. And underneath the cognitive simulations, there are um, a half a dozen factors uh, that relate to the awake brain and the asleep brain and the interaction between the two of them. It's actually a bit of a pity um, the Intel slides went into the mathematics a lot more and I think the people probably gathered here have a mathematical interest. But that was recorded and the slides will be available. So um, you'll fill in the blanks and if you have any questions, please feel free to ask associated with these things. But um, an interest that I have in the future is also using uh, time characteristics. So these are very defined states. The noble ape is either asleep or the noble ape is awake. And that changes the, the brain chemistry, for want of a better term. But also I wanted to add things like anger, um, various biological uh, elements, uh, perhaps protective elements uh, into the cognitive simulation, and also have a diversity. The noble apes, as they're born, are very much hardwired with the two awake and asleep um, interface in the cognitive simulation and I'd like to have kind of more transition and probably a group broader spread in fact it's an interesting use of the noble ape genome as well to get um, the, the kind of cognitive simulation tuned for, for various apes so I think the future for the cognitive simulation is, is pretty good uh, in terms of these directions the other thing is through ApeScript and there isn't a slide on this you can actually write your own cognitive simulation for noble ape so for example um, Larry Yeager's Polyworld I've taken the sea monkeys from Larry Yeager's Polyworld put it into Noble Ape, replace the Noble Ape cognitive simulation with the Polyworld cognitive simulation. Pedro Ferreira, who contributed a lot to the Noble Ape simulation probably three to five years ago, who works at CERN, wrote his own cognitive simulation and put it in there. I've had interest from other academics in terms of developing a cognitive simulation, and ApeScript is the language of choice for developing the uh, you kind of roll your own cognitive simulation. We'll talk a little bit about ApeScript in a minute. Um, quick question. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. And not only is capable of having you know various states sleep awake, mm -hmm. perhaps emotions. So to describe to describe sleep and awake, this is the difficulty. If you've run the cognitive simulation, you get a sense that sleep and awake tunes the aspects of the simulation. It's not like a state at all. It's basically um, the algorithms that are applied react differently. Uh, in the awake state and the asleep state. So what you see in terms of the patterns, in terms of the sensors and actuators in the awake state are very different from the asleep state. In fact, they're half rendered uh, in the asleep state. So there's a persistence in the sleep state and also uh, a lower level interaction to simulate that. But anyway, continue. Uh, but I take it they are learning algorithms? Uh, they they mm. actually learn as they go? They're reinforcing algorithms. They're not traditional learning algorithms. Okay. So that's where it breaks down in terms of in terms of neural networks theory. It's more a reinforcing algorithm than a, a traditional learning algorithm. And the interaction of fear is really a counter-learning algorithm as well. Fear is very, very reactive. Um, and it's designed to 
um, almost simulate the kind of shock jolt element and the fact that really groups of, well, primates, but really a wide variety of different kinds of animals have a very strange kind of uh, relationship with their, the external world in terms of fear and reaction to fear. So it was very much based on that kind of uh, reactivity component with some element of nurturing as well. So if they feel safe, the reactions can still trigger fear and, you know, there, there are combining factors in this. Are there uh, any random factors? Certainly. Have, oh, so yeah. if you develop, you say like there's a hundred apes, there'll be a certain random difference? Not in that case, and this is what I'm talking about with regards to the future. The, the brain chemistry element, I think, could work into the genome in a very interesting way. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a couple of slides. Not currently in that way, but there is a kind of noise element within the cognitive simulation which simulates the, the, the distinctions between... So multiple apes observing the same thing can have a different reaction to it, basically. So is any information from the cognitive capabilities of an individual ape passed on when it reproduces and... Um, as a child? So this will come through the genome. It's not currently. It's something that I'd like to do with regards to growing the cognitive simulation and certainly from the stuff that Dick Gordon has talked about, for example, if you've heard Dick Gordon uh, talk about the evolution of embryos and these kind of things, I think there's a lot of potential really growing the cognitive simulation from a small space into a larger space and how that actually maps on to kind of expanding identity and desires. So yeah, there's certainly room for that in the future uh, that's being thought about currently. You've got to appreciate the process. The, the impact of processes is really great with regards to this. So when I first started developing Noble Ape, it was a two-dimensional cognitive simulation, very, very basic. Um, the ability to do it in three dimensions, obviously the, the stuff that was done at Apple and Intel in terms of the SSE optimizations, these kind of things, really we're now in an ideal place to do this kind of manipulation, but we were still pretty heavily processor-locked even, even six, seven years ago. Sure. So, um, yeah, it, it's all moving in, in that direction. So I wanted to just give a, a brief slide with regards to how I actually maintain Noble Ape as a small-scale after-hours open-source project, and certainly um, in terms of discussions with the community, and I've had this talk with Jeffrey tonight on the <laughs> a number of levels, it's a different kind of relationship than you would have in a standard day job or maybe commercial software development or really even large-scale open-source software development. In terms of the fact that you really are talking about long-term uh, project planning, they ha things happen, but they don't happen as quickly as you may necessarily want them. There's continuous bug fixing, uh, both in terms of submitted bugs and bugs that you discover. And the thing that I found with Noble Ape is there are... If you call the iPad on the Mac version two different platforms, there are now four platforms that are supported on Noble Ape. Uh, Windows, uh, Mac, Cocoa, uh, Linux, an iPad. There will be an iPhone 4 version coming soon. There's discussion associated with an Android version. I've always had an interest, going back to the original codebook discussion, in terms of releasing it on as many platforms as possible. And in terms of actually designing this, and this again was a slide that was shown at Intel, but I actually pulled off this one, it really is about having a very thin platform layer and trying to do the most nutritious development under that. Um, so ongoing platform maintenance, which is pretty well a constant thing. Uh, I mean, certainly... Uh, you know, the, the way Apple has changed uh, its APIs in the past, what, four or five years, um, even prior to then. I mean, I think the real reason that Apple picked up Noble Ape was because I had a functioning Carbon implementation. And at the time, there were a lot of open source developers that were still catching up. So really ongoing platform maintenance, and this has to be underscored. And also, it's an open environment. I mean, I, I do a lot of podcasts with Biota. I have uh, the Noble Ape 
uh, podcast as well, constantly putting out information, constantly fielding queries. It's in no way a walled garden. It's something that is completely open and really for, for continuous discussion. I was at Apple today, actually, uh, and the feedback I got from Apple was, all these things are wonderful, but we also need a kind of academic-style blog where you publish updates on a regular basis that we can then parse in text form too. So, like I say, this is an expanding thing. And really the exciting thing, and this comes from, from uh, Rick and, and the team at Apple, the folks at Intel, but also from individuals, you occasionally get really amazing contributions. And I wanted to talk about this with regards to Bob Mottram in particular, because in the past month, he has completely ripped apart aspects of the mobile ape simulation and put it back together uh, in his own design. And really, it's fantastic because it's kind of moved my own thinking. And I mean, the Apple folk, the Intel folk, uh, people previously, Riddle Pentapalli and Pedro Ferreira, who's at CERN, these are all people that have come in and moved... Um, ideas in Noble Ape. I mean, Jeffrey's moved ideas in Noble Ape as well in terms of just having an interactive community. But Bob has contributed source code, which is, uh, you know, where it really comes from. So Bob is very well known in the robotics community, both in the professional and hobbyist robotics community. He has a good interlinking with robotic vision. So if you've seen some of his stuff on uh, Facebook and YouTube, which he's really passed in, kind of linked the professional hobbyist robotics community uh, in terms of interactive and open source vision algorithms for, for robots. And he's based in North Yorkshire in the UK. And Bob has been... And there's, a, there's a good overlap, and it's not just the hard artificial life aspect of the robotics community, but there's a good overlap with the robotics community and the artificial life community. And Bob's certainly interested in, in artificial life as well. So his contributions, and I think there are five or six slides associated with this. The first thing we added um, was the naming conventions associated with the Noble Apes. Previously, I did have some naming, naming conventions. You may wonder, well, why would you actually want to name the noble apes? Well, the idea is that what you see is a screen, you see kind of dots moving around on the screen, and if you want to debug the simulation, saying, you know, the ape that exists at point, you know, x equals 256, 328 by y, you know, what have you, it just doesn't work. So the idea was to give um, names to the noble apes. There are 256 male names, 256 female names, and then 64 different surnames which are conjoined into kind of double-barrel surnames. Uh, and that has had a number of interesting side effects that we'll talk about uh, in a minute. The other thing that he added was grooming and parasites. And obviously, you know, these, these are primates. They have social interactions. Previously, the social interactions were done through very simple kind of language communication and also some kind of familial uh, knowledge, but relatively, relatively minor and Bob um, added grooming and parasites uh, specifically. The parasites start off at random, but they grow. Obviously, the more parasites, the more they spread. Uh, there's transmissions between apes when they move past each other. But what came out of the grooming was this idea of honour. Really, I guess, putting the nobility back in the apes. And that creates an ascribed social status that the apes have, which they can get through two ways, either through grooming and by, or by fighting. And the fighting typically exists between males of different families. Here the idea of families with the double-barreled surnames. So you have all these strange interactions associated with honour, and we'll, we'll go on a little bit to talk about Bob's changes. 
So in addition to this, there are uh, preferences for particular appearances so that the apes avoid uh, similarly named other apes in terms of uh, families. But the linking too is with regards to the expanded genome. So really this will probably be represented in a variety of things. So you'll have particular families that will have uh, particular fur characteristics. They'll be larger apes. They will have particular fondnesses for uh, various kinds of food and these kind of things. So the familial groups map very heavily into the genome. He also added a gestation period um, for kind of conceiving noble apes, uh, the whole notion of parenting, uh, the mother carries the child or the child follows the mother for a period of time. And this was relatively easy to add to the noble ape simulation. I mean, really what I wanted to do with noble ape was make it a palette for people like Bob to come along and add these kind of features. But these are, these are interesting features that have had some interesting kind of changes in the, the movement and the interaction. As I mentioned, he's also added a, a rich genome. When I started developing Noble Ape, I was more interested in it being a kind of social simulation and actually exploring the kind of cognitive interactions and the way societies develop just with the cognitive interactions and also some indication of the land area and some kind of minor tribalism, but not really a heavy um, genetic simulation. But Bob has, has taken that and working with me, he's rewritten aspects of it. So there is now a very strong genome. And here's just a selection of some of the things that have been added in the genome in terms of controlling the rate of growth, uh, status preference, obviously, whether they're like more honourable or less honourable apes, uh, pigmentation in the fur and pigmentation preference, uh, various characteristics associated with grooming, aggression, speed, the kind of stagger aspects of the apes, which I guess will change to aspects of body size, their ability to climb hills, how they get energy from the various things they consume, vegetables, fruits, meats, and also their latent energy use. And this isn't all positive. There are actually a combination of factors within the genome that affect each of these, and that is something which is still um, relatively easily programmable in terms of experimenting with different interactions um, in, in the genome. So this is still relatively early days, uh, but through some of the other stuff I'll show some interesting results. The big thing for me, and certainly the thing that has been a pretty heavily requested feature over the past two years is the Noble Ape web server. And this is really translating the idea of Noble Ape as being a graphical interface where you run a simulation as an application and you have the graphics come up in the interaction with really this thing being run on a web server, uh, a Debian uh, web server currently. And... Um, having a wide variety of interactions with web service. So obviously, it was kind of BBC-style graphics, weather reporting, the, the wind is mapped through there as well. One of the things Bob added early on was Twitter reporting. So um, the hashtag NobleApe will give you all the simulated noble apes and their various tweets into... So here's an example of the kind of double-barreled naming conventions as well. And some of the early, what I'm going to call the narrative engine, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but just talking about what's going on in the simulation being tweeted out. And really, this is a feature which has been asked for for about two years now by a wide variety of people because if we take the responsibility of the simulation and put it on a web server, the responsibility with regards to the graphics rendering can be farmed out. So, for example, there's a technology called OpenSim, which is like a, an open source Second Life server, and the ability to have an interface where the Noble web server farms out all the graphics to the Second Life client, for example, and that's where really you get the fractal resolution coming into play with the biological simulation in particular. So you can actually have specific grasses and specific birds and insects and these kind of things actually being mapped into, into a Second Life um, client environment. Depending on uh, having the apes actually display as <laughs> looking like apes mm -hmm. and having some of the fur 
pigment characteristics. Exactly. Exactly. So this takes the responsibility, note the future um, aspect to this, but this takes the responsibility of a lot of the graphics outside the existing simulation, and I think it creates a, a, a very interesting dynamic. So there's also obviously the potential for a kind of web browser interface. If you're not going to use the Second Life client, there's a potential um, to use a, a traditional uh, web browser interface into that. Certainly within the Biota podcast, we've had some discussion with what's called, I guess, the genetic phenotype, um, or uh, Biota Eve is another term that we've used for a kind of XML phenotype uh, output from various simulations. So this could be used uh, as a means of kind of getting the web browser interface started too. And the thing that has been asked for outside the artificial life community is for additive game content. So the idea that you'll have a noble ape uh, web server running and you'll have some kind of third-party game that needs large-scale weather simulation, biological simulation, or potentially even interactions with noble apes kind of going on there. So all this comes through the web server, and really Bob is, is, is the main developer um, he's submitted a wide variety of source code that he holds copyright on, which I'm perfectly happy with because I think this is a direction which is uh, going to take Noble Ape out of the kind of closed simulation environment and actually provide a, a wide variety of users. So I think this is quite an exciting uh, direction and certainly uh, my conversations at Apple uh, today echoed that too. Another thing he's working on is this idea of the social graph and everything that he's developed, he's forwarded me a series of articles. This one, I think, came from the BBC, that um, in primate populations, they still have this idea of the social graph, which really comes from Facebook, the idea of friendship group. But the thing that interests me, and we'll talk a bit about the narrative engine in a minute, is this idea that you have a social graph which extends in time. So you'll have apes that die that still persist in the social graph that future apes will be able to tell stories about. And also, they become almost like mythological fi um, figures but they exist in the social graph. And obviously it's to do with friendships and disputes and pair bonding. So it's a kind of meta simulation that's running in parallel to the noble ape simulation in order to construct this social graph skeleton. And the potential for creating social behaviours uh, and making things more sophisticated is, is obviously a, a no-brainer through this kind of um, uh, meta simulation. Similarly, jealousy and tribalism that are actually emerging explicitly and can be tracked through this kind of interface. And also goal-oriented actions um, in terms of uh, personal interactions and long-term histories and these kind of things. Um, tri um, trivially moving towards friends and away from enemies, um, seeking out specific mates. And I think this will probably rep be represented graphically similar to Facebook in terms of the, um, in terms of the social graphs. Uh, and I think Bob is working on this literally as I'm talking currently. So this will probably be out in a kind of Friday, Saturday time frame in a kind of beta form. Uh, but yeah, this is very interesting. And again, if you think about artificial life in terms of societies and basically being a mapping in society, this is really the modern, or at least the, um, the cliched modern narrative. And to create an artificial life simulation from very basic aims that is then mapping into something which is a very kind of contemporary discussion piece, particularly with social sciences, I think is very interesting. Uh, so future development, this idea of the narrative engine. And the narrative engine is something which has basically been percolating through the artificial life community, but probably squashed by our own specific biases. And it's the idea that what we've done in simulation typically is created rich graphical environments shown agents interacting in these environments, but the agents are purely represented graphically. 
And rather than representing them graphically, the narrative engine is saying that each of these agents actually has a story to tell. So rather than the circumstance, actually, I'm, I'm talking too, too deeply. I'll just give you the dot points to start with. Noble Warfare is another technology, which I'll talk about in a minute, and also Objective Ape Script, which we'll talk about. Sorry, I was getting too caught up in the narrative engine. So it's the idea that the Noble Apes could speak English. What kind of things would they say? Um, it's the idea that basically, rather than just existing as simulated entities, they have a wide variety of interactions that you saw with the Twitter feed, for example, where they have relationships which they describe. And this kind of thing comes from typically non-artificial life um, observers. So, for example, when I was talking about my trip here, coming and talking at Intel, I mentioned ApeScript. And my wife said to me, well, is that the language the noble apes speak? And I said, no, it's a scripting language. And in parallel to this, I put out in the uh, Biota podcast a conversation that Bruce Damer had with Terence McKenna in the late 90s, which was basically the same discussion. So this idea of the narrative engine has always percolated, I think, under the artificial life community, uh, but has never really emerged um, as, a, as a means of doing things like debugging. So you get these long narratives and you say, oh, isn't this interesting? Because when you see a graphical representation of the simulation, you don't get the underlying relationships and interactions that you do through, the, uh, through a narrative. So I think it, it gives great uh, debugging potential. And also it really explains to an external observer that there's a lot of complicated stuff going on under the surface, that this isn't just dots moving around an environment, that they're actually, you know, in simulated form, having these kind of interactions. And it forms kind of a, a, a tapestry um, associated with the simulations. And this is something that I'm interested in working on pretty heavily in the near future, and Bob has touched on with some of his stuff, obviously with double-barrel naming, this idea of a kind of eight-book social graph creates things that all feed into the narrative engine. But what interests me in particular is the aspects of, of plain English and really what, what direction the narrative will take. So this is, a, this is an interesting project that's coming in the very near future. Do you uh, consider something similar to how, the, how it's done in the game uh, The Sims, where... When they will talk to each other, they will kind of symbolically talk mm -hmm. to each other. Instead of actually putting out full sentences, Certainly. They are, they're kind of sending meme ideas back and forth that Certainly. represent graphically the symbols. Yeah. That might be a way of logically... The Nobelies have basic communications, and it's described by people who see it as like feelers, which indicate communication. It doesn't have that kind of description, but I think the potential, particularly when we're adding you know, richer biology, richer social understanding, that kind of interaction is too simple. And it doesn't give the, the representations of time and it requires the observer to be watching it. Mm -hmm. So the, diff the difficulty with regards to a graphical representation is that the observer is required to watch it versus the idea of a narrative engine where it's produced in some text form or something like that where the person can read it after the fact. But you could even in your text do it in, in like symbolic words, mm -hmm. you know, just like concepts. So-and-so says, you know... Certainly. Certain concept to so-and-so. Certainly. So the underlying, the underlying elements of the narrative engine will probably be like that, in terms of these kind of atomic uh, emotional structures that are passed backwards and forwards, but really it's translation from that level into plain English that is certainly the part that interests me. Okay. Um, so yes, it will be represented um, in, the simulation, in the simulation sense like that, but the way that it's translated into, into English will be considerably more natural and probably um, interesting ambiguities and interesting things will, will be challenging in terms of those interactions, um, but certainly something interesting for the future. Of course, if you speak entirely in 
conceptual object, mm -hmm. you miss out on the entire social dynamic of misunderstanding. Exactly. And yeah, and that's that's another strong point with the notion of the social graph that things can be misconstrued as well. So you have perceptions that if this ape has been particularly hostile to this other ape up until this point, that when they're telling them that the berry that they're about to eat may actually poison them, their inclination would be that that ape is lying, or the, these kind of things are certainly part of the dynamic too. So it, you're right; it's not it's not really atomic as described. There is a wide variety of social factors um, and and external things that filter into it. Who funds this project? No one. No one. So it's uh, voluntarily. This the dynamic of it has always been that way, because when I lived here, when I lived in the Bay Area, I was constantly pitched to create it in some kind of commercial enterprise and it would go in different directions and it would be amazing and these kind of things. And I think that every time that came into something, it always worked against it. So now I'm very cautious about maintaining it purely after hours. And if, for example, like, like Rick did and his colleagues at Apple and folks at Intel want to use it, I have no problem with that. Um, the kind of contributions that I get back is, aren't that great, actually. They do it really to kind of scratch their own itches, and Rick can talk more about that. But it's not stuff that's really feeding back into the simulation in any general sense. What, on a personal level, what it meant to me was, in the past 10 years, I've had seven different jobs. I've had five companies that have closed, I've had one section that closed, and I've had an international move. This is the nature of developing technology commercially. Things collapse and disappear, and... And Noble Ape has always been something that's meta to that. And it's very important to me that it remains meta to that. Um, I think there are certainly circumstances where it could be used in an institution where they may want to, you know, get some benefit that I have as well. And, you know, there may be some sharing that. And I don't really have a problem with that. But the way that it's been maintained currently has always been... And I think this is the history of a lot of the artificial life community. I mean, Jeffrey can talk about experiences with regards to commercialising aspects of artificial life and backlash from that and all this kind of stuff. There's been a long history associated with this. Um, and I'm happy with thinking the way things are currently. I mean, obviously, it's not stopping any part of this development. And keeping it after hours and keeping it in the way that it has has actually sustained it probably longer than if it was... How many people are currently contributing to this? It's difficult to say. It's one of the reasons that I'm here, um, to kind of meet people who are currently... For me, as far as I'm concerned, it's me and Bob Mottram in the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, I do get occasional external code contributions. In terms of actual users, there are about 500 to 700 that update frequently. Uh, in terms of ApeScript users, I think there are probably about two dozen active ApeScript people that give feedback. Um, it's very difficult to track actual numbers because once it's released, these things have tails. They're not just downloading from me, they're downloading from other sites. Um, also through things like fresh meat and through the fact that the source code's maintained um, on SourceForge, it's very difficult to track real user numbers. But I do get the sense with every release, and this was something that was going on in the open source artificial life community as well, people were wondering whether the numbers were actually progressively decreasing. That basically you do release, 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 you'd start with big numbers and they'd eventually drop down to nothing. I haven't found that with Noble Ape. There have been ebbs and flows. But my feeling is if I do a release maybe every six months, I get more numbers than if I do a release every two months. But the features that Bob Mottram's putting in currently, I will generate a press release basically for the next release and say this is a completely different simulation. It has all this, have at it, artificial life, announce, you know, other, other channels. 
Um, and my feeling is for those kind of things, obviously, I get large numbers. Have you tried to look for uh, some sort of academic uh, funding? Um, I've, had, I've had academics who've said to me that that is the way to go, and my experience with that is that um, I'm not an academic. I'm not a paid academic. So... Um, I'm interested in developing noble ape as I do after hours. If I get anything else, so much the better. But my experiences with those people have typically been that they have gotten small amounts of funding for their own research that have had uses with noble ape, but it's not something where I see the money associated with that or even the equipment. Um, my relationship, I mean, for example, my relationship with Apple, I got a, a nominal discount on a computer one time in the past seven years. Um, really, the early Noble Ape development, I did get a grant from the Australian Film Commission, uh, and that was very useful for buying equipment, but it didn't contribute anything financially to me. It was just equipment that was devalued, basically. Um, I'd like to see users who are doing this kind of stuff, uh, but most of the users who use Noble Ape in the academic sphere are already funded, and they're not getting funding and an adjunct, basically, with Noble Ape. Uh, but, I mean, if there are people out there... Uh, yeah. So, what interests me is the well, ApeScript's the next slide. Why don't I do ApeScript and then I'll talk? I'm interested in expanding ApeScript, and certainly that was my conversation at Apple today. Um, once you have the uh, Noble Ape web server running, there's the idea of uh, hot swappability. The idea that ApeScript is running concurrently, so you have a number of simulated agents, and they are all running ApeScript in parallel. And I think there are a number of productive uses for ApeScript. I mean, each aspect of the simulation, I think, could have productive academic uses. Uh, but ApeScript in particular with regards to AI, intelligent agents, and also the ability to run it um, kind of concurrently, I think, uh, has, has a number of productive uses. And certainly that was part of the discussion at Apple today. Um, I've gotten some developer feedback. As I mentioned, Pedro Ferreira wrote a cognitive simulation using ApeScript. And he gave me a lot of feedback, a lot, a lot of which has gone back into ApeScript. So there is a need for a rework, which I'm titling currently Objective ApeScript, although it may be called Concurrent ApeScript. Um, and also translate ApeScript into uh, a more formal uh, object-oriented programming-centric format. The way it is currently is like a single simulation cycle associated with the being with other associated functions coming from that. It's a very simple language, very small memory footprint, um, currently, the idea of running it concurrently is, is pretty um, straightforward. But certainly, um, for example, Breve, John Klein's artificial life simulation, moved into Python. He originally had his own Steve language, and he moved it to Python. And also, people have talked to me about using Lua, which is very heavily used in game development, uh, as being two uh, possibilities for scripting. For now, I'm going to stick with ApeScript. Um, I think it's ideally suited for what it does in the Noble Ape simulation and also for folks who want to do intelligent agent modelling in this kind of um, simulation with regards to single cycle simulation or potential uh, division or other interactions, I think ApeScript could be very useful. Um, so anyway, that's the slide associated with ApeScript. I'll step back to Noble Warfare. 
um, which was another aspect of the simulation which came from the game development community. Um, obviously, I mean, you know, in the company of Jeffrey Ventrella, I, I don't want to talk too much about the linking between artificial life and game development. Uh, but the feedback that I received uh, early on was that there were a number of underlying components that would work very well in a real-time tactical engine. So this was taking aspects of the mobile ape simulation and developing uh, basically kind of pitch combat simulation. Really, this came towards the end of my time uh, when I was in the UK. I lived literally looking over a battlefield, a kind of Bronze Age battlefield, uh, and just a lot of... Uh, sense of the effect that warfare and early style combat with the notion that the apes would become uh, potentially more nationalistic or could have these kind of disputes really led to the early development of noble warfare and looking back there are no open source real-time tactical engines so the ability to develop these kind of engines for um, historical periods and things also filters back into I guess aspects of the social sciences um, military strategy these kind of things but really taking something which is quite abstract uh, and using the noble ape simulation for that and I think there'll be ape script moving into noble warfare in the in the near future as well so this slide was intentionally left relatively blank because I've obviously had meetings with Apple and Intel uh, over the past couple of days. I don't think... Were you at WWDC 2003, Rick? Before your time? <laughs> so... <th> okay. <laughs> this was the first display of Noble 8 that Apple did at WWDC 2003. I was in the UK at the time. I, I couldn't attend. It was quite a, an emotional experience, mainly because it was a conference that I couldn't pay the, for the flights or for the attendance of, but also just to see it demonstrated by Sanjay Patel and Nathan Slingerland at the time was a very strong uh, kind of emotional experience. And it was released with the Chud Toolkit. It's moved now in various directions, but my meeting with Apple today to summarise was that there, with regards to the, the ARM chipset, obviously what they're using in the um, iPhone and iPad, there's potential for doing um, what Intel picked up uh, with the simulation in terms of process or optimization, but the greater interest is really uh, linking ApeScript with um, I think the Unity engine and a variety of other things in terms of um, linking some of the parallelization of, of the AI of the um, ApeScript elements specifically uh, with things that are coming out of, of Apple currently. So I was kind of painted a bit of a sketch today in terms of what uh, what the folks at Apple, uh, Dr. Ernie in particular, would like to see. Uh, come out of Noble Ape in the next six months that folks at Apple can use. This, what has happened with the Chud Toolkit, it's kind of moved in different directions. Um, and really, I'm not sure going into the future. The iPad version, I thought, um, would have some use uh, by the folks at Apple. But really, it's, it's going to be the iPad plus something um, in order to have kind of continued use with Apple. And the folks at Intel looks like they'll be using Noble Ape um, into the foreseeable future, uh, both with regards to the Apple interaction and the, some other stuff um, which is coming through probably the mobile space, uh, which is looking very interesting, and they'll use um, Noble Ape for the optimizations there. Um, meeting, I mean, meeting the engineers at Intel, basically there's, there was a team there uh, headed by Justin Landon, and it seemed like every engineer in the team had used Noble Ape in some part of... Uh, of, of their work at Intel uh, very interesting uh, so in the future with very minimal effort on my part I think there'll be a continued use of in, uh, by Intel and here it's very much with regards to processor tuning, uh, performance optimization, external metrics and this is another thing that uh, came through Apple um, that if the, 
The metric is um, brain cycles per second. So it's very much tied into the cognitive simulation, the way the cognitive simulation is optimized and used on, on the various chipsets. There was some real-time component as well that was, um, was done at Apple. Uh, I'm not sure if Rick can talk any more on that. But there was some interaction with regards to third-party developers and the real-time graphics, I think, with regards to the tuning. Um, but again, it all came down to um, brain cycles per second. So these are the two different directions. They really are almost, um, almost now tangential in terms of what Apple wants and what Intel wants. But I think certainly with Intel going on into the future, Apple with some effort on my part going into the future. There's this idea that when you develop an artificial life simulation, you know, why, why aren't you developing a commercial game? Aren't these two things? Isn't an artificial life simulation basically just someone who wants to create a commercial game but doesn't have the necessary infrastructure. And I think there is really a distinction between, like, for example, a novel and a movie. Now, a commercial game is currently very much developed in the Hollywood model. They have Hollywood-style budgets. They create these things based on very, you know, very well-defined time frames. And uh, it's designed very much in the Hollywood structure. And I think really... What we do with artificial life developments is almost like a self-published novel or like a blog, basically. But it's a completely different dynamic. And no one ever says to an author, you know, if only your book was a movie. And I think the same thing happens with artificial life developers, that there's always this compare and contrast. But if you actually frame it in completely different perspectives, it seems, you know, it seems relatively ridiculous to say, um, you know, if only your, uh, your simulation was a, a commercial game. But I do think there's a relationship here. And I do think there's a relationship in terms of inspiration, uh, in terms of general direction, and also the potential of taking artificial life simulations and really kind of tuning them uh, to particular aspects of, of commercial game development. But I mean, um, you know, with Jeffrey Ventrella in the room, it's very hard to really <laughs> talk too much at this point because um, I'm here with a luminary. So, uh, so, yeah, but that, that's my perspective. And I'd like to see more of this. I'd like to see more formality in terms of moving novels into movies, in terms of moving artificial life simulations uh, into commercial games, because I think there's good learning from both quarters. I mean, certainly uh, what we've learned in terms of, you know, long-term development and some of the experiences could really actually make a, a greater suite of commercial games. And obviously there were great hopes associated with Spore, uh, and the kind of uh, you know potential for further games that were more artificial life centric, and I think certainly with the web server, that idea of having the artificial life simulation as really additive content um, could be a, a way into that too. Well, if you're if you're noble apes, or actually if you're able to generate a narrative narrative mm -hmm. from there, you could generate uh, thousands of novels. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Just by picking out a couple of characters. Certainly. That yeah. Exactly yeah, yeah. Or I was I was thinking more graphic novels actually. Okay. I think the potential there is probably you'd get greater readership if they were graphic novels, particularly with the sex and violence. I think there's aspects there that probably translate that better. Like yes. <laughs> so anyway, I also wanted to talk a little bit about biota, and I think this was the request that Jeffrey made specifically in terms of talking about what biota is today the kind of history of biota and where I see it going in the future. So my relationship with biota really comes in at a kind of biota three um, 
point. I started developing Nobelate at the time of the first biota conference. We went, I didn't know about the first biota conference. I heard about it after the fact. But really, by the time of the second biota conference, this is something that I wanted to attend. Will Wright, actually, the creator of Spore, um, also wanted to do, attend the Biota 2 conference. And I think maybe for similar reasons, we both weren't able um, to attend. It was... An interesting conference in terms of having a lot of uh, amazing names, obviously the late Douglas Adams, people like Richard Dawkins. But when Bruce Damer gives a narrative associated with Biota, he really talks about these two conferences. I think it started getting interesting around Biota 3. And I think that's that's the first one that Jeffrey attended. This brought in a lot more kind of game developers, the Mathematica people, a lot of different in areas. Rather than going with the names that Biota 2 had, Biota 3 was more a kind of people's conference. There were breakaway uh, groups. There were talks associated with what went on to, I guess, become the Evo grid or potentially Biota Eve. And really, after that, the conferences stopped. I don't think the artificial life community stopped at this point at all. In fact, if you talk about generations and certainly talking about the, um, the fantasy game development, these kind of things, Dave Kerr contacted me in 2002, I think. He was the first contact that I really had. I had contact with Bruce Damer and Sue Wilcox and a wide variety of people uh, because I was invited to attend Biota 3. But the first time in terms of a peer of my own age group contacting me was really Dave Kerr. And at that point, I constructed this view there were probably 20, maybe 30 artificial life developers who were still relatively active who could form a community. And at the time, I was talking with Bruce Damer and I think Jake Bowman, who was the, the previous editor of the Biota site, about how we could bring this community together. It was a diverse community. It was a relatively disaffected community. There was a wide variety of strange politics that none of us really understood until we started digging. Uh, but it was an interesting process from uh, Biota 3 to, uh, I guess, 2005 when I picked up the Biota site. Interesting history about that. I was in correspondence with Bruce Damer pretty well through the early part of, um, of uh, the 2000s. Uh, about Biota and about restarting Biota and about the kind of movement into, I guess, what became the social networks, almost kind of social media, um, how to construct the Biota site, all these kind of things. And around the time, Bruce launched a project called Darwin at Home, not to be confused with Gerald de Jong's Darwin at Home, which went on to become Biota at Home. And at that point, Bruce was swamped by, I think he did a Scientific American article that went online, and he said, um, I'm too swamped to actually run the biota site anymore. Tom, you've been pestering me for the past five years. Would you be interested in taking over the duties? And I thought, this is an amazing opportunity. This is almost... There are two aspects to biota that re I really took initially. There's a kind of... I don't want to use the term archaeology too disparagingly, but there was a kind of archaeological dig element to trying to understand... You know, this really was like the death of artificial life in terms of the public perception after bio three Biota 4 conferences. But I knew there were people like Dave Kerr, there were people like John Klein, there were people like Jeffrey who had continued their own developments but were not communicative. Now, obviously, there was the International Society, and I'll go on to talk about that afterwards, but really it was about collecting these groups together. And the first thing that I found, and this really goes in contrast to Bruce Damer's narrative, is that the names weren't important anymore. So, for example, obviously I contacted uh, Richard Dawkins and a wide variety of kind of historical names. Most of those people, aside from Dawkins, 
have now, well, I don't want to use the term reintegrated, but have come back into the biota community. So Jeffrey and I were talking about Tom Ray, for example. He was one of the last names to really get back in contact. People like Steve Grant have come back earlier. But really going back to a lot of the historical figures and also introducing them to what goes on currently. So it was really mixing the old and the new. But I think now what is important is not the names, it's the kind of continued narrative. We'll talk a little bit about this. So I think there are a new generation of developers. I think there are people, particularly if you look at the A-Life 11 conference, probably about 70, maybe 60, 70% of the people there were students. I think there's a new generation of people that are getting interested in A-Life. And the real question is, is Biota the right way of introducing them to that? So there's a kind of historical legacy associated with the artificial life community and also something which... Bruce Damer and I share is this whole notion of an archivist that basically what we are doing is collecting together all these things and saving them not for although contemporary consumption is good but really this idea of, of folks in the future wanting to understand the kind of rich tapestry but also there's a problem associated with moving forward that it's not just about a history it's actually about very contemporary problems so obviously the Biota podcasts have been the format um, which I've kind of embraced and championed. It was started in 2006. We probably have closer to 200 hours of audio now. I've not actually done the, the count of the audio, but it's academically referenced, which was relatively important, actually, um, in terms of actually getting out the audio. A lot of the discussions uh, have started to uh, appear uh, in academia, which is wonderful. I personally don't think podcasts are an ideal format. Uh, they require a lot of time. Uh, there's some discussion associated with transcription. I think transcription works for Google searches. The podcasts are still very niche, uh, and it's not really the best format. I don't know whether video is the best format, but I think we're still looking for an ideal format. But what we're doing currently is just recording as much audio as possible. The thing that interests me about the audio recordings, and particularly putting them all on the Internet Archive, is that... I find this currently. People discover the Biota podcasts now. They go back, they have four and a half years worth of audio to listen to. I will get emails from people that are still listening to the discussions associated with the Cambrian explosion with Roy Plotnick, which is one of my personal favourites as well, because it talks about this whole notion of here's an event which we understand to a certain degree. How do we simulate that event in terms of actually getting greater knowledge out of it? And Roy, in terms of my own... Um, idea of intelligence as a just basically a form of survival that really came from that discussion but i think really what we're doing currently with recording all these podcasts is we're creating listeners in two decades time these podcasts have very long tails the idea is that progressively there will be more and more devices which will get people listening to podcasts slower uh, interaction but what we're really doing is creating an audio archive that will probably be used and referenced well into the future. And my hope is the Internet Archive will, will persist through that. The other thing that we're getting, and um, I have CDs to give to you all as well, is people are burning these things onto CDs. They're getting transmitted that way as well. Um, the last A-Life conference, they were passed out in CD form. Uh, got some feedback from that, but again, it's, it's the podcast format not being ideal. So where will it go in the future? Well, I'd like to do more videos. I'd like to do more project analysis. There has been discussion in the past six months associated with creating almost like a community portal site. And unfortunately, due to, in part, some of the stuff with Noblate that I've talked about and a variety of other things, um, I've not really been dragging my heels on that, but I've been explaining 
exploring various platforms and the flaws associated with various platforms. Uh, I have a couple of artists in the UK that are very eager to design a, a Biota community portal. It will not be done under the name Biota. Um, Bruce Damer was very clear that he wanted Biota to continue in this very much this kind of historical legacy side of things. So it'll be a new portal under a new name with new skinning, uh, new ideas, and really leading more towards new developers. Um, but I mean, for folks who've heard my conversation with Gerald Jung specifically on this, that's basically where it's at. But finding um, finding the right kind of portal and the right kind of uh, interaction is the ongoing project with that. So. For the future of what, I'm, what, what is going on here, this, this thing that we're all really a part of, and certainly my work with Biota, is in terms of creating an artificial life community focus that, not is, that isn't just about the historical legacy, but is really about moving this thing into the, into the future. Um, and obviously you've heard the recorded conversation, maybe you've heard the recorded conversations that I've had with Mark Badeau about the role of the International Society as well, because obviously you've always had the International Society and you've had Biota. They've been two quite distinct things. The International Society has always been probably more heavily involved with academia, not so much with industry and certainly not so much with hobbyists. Biota is more a kind of some academic, some industry, heavy hobbyist currently. And all this needs to needs to change. I don't think the International Society... The International Society has some interest in terms of moving outside academia, but it's not going to have a similar kind of dynamic uh, as Biota has. I have never attended an ALIFE conference, and I've never attended any other artificial life conference, and my sense is that a majority of the community that Biota serves is in a similar boat. I think the notion of conferences in particular, I mean, coming to the Bay Area here has been outside the boundaries of my own financing. So I think even general movement now is in incredibly costly uh, for individuals and particularly the kind of people who are either thinking about developing artificial life or are developing uh, interesting projects. It's not really a community outside academia uh, that does a lot of flying. And I think that's interesting with regards to the podcast in particular is that you give an ability and we've had, I mean, we had the, the two kids in Philadelphia, kids, well, 19-year-old guys, um, one who used his real name and one who didn't uh, a few bio lives ago. So really I'm interested in finding these um, uh, folks who wouldn't attend A-Life conferences but still have contributions into artificial life. Uh, I think really doing the audio um, recordings currently works very well. Um, finding recording times ideally suited for particular guests is uh, part of the finesse, but, you know, that works out. There's this notion currently of the artificial life winter, um, which certainly has been discussed through uh, the Biota podcast. It's a pity uh, Sharon Minsook uh, couldn't be here this evening because certainly her feedback through the Biota podcast was the ones that dealt with surviving the winter. It's certainly, you know, my own uh, position as well. Uh, although I found a job relatively quickly, I lost my, my previous job uh, last year and had to temporarily suspend the Biota podcast because of that. I think currently... My perspective is that we've not really seen summer since probably the late 90s in the artificial life community in terms of the ability to actually have external funding sources or um, people actually working on artificial life as their day jobs. What you see now is basically an ever-growing hobbyist community that the International Society isn't, um, you know, isn't part of and certainly the folks who can't attend day life conferences. And what... 
I'm trying to do with Biota currently is give a narrative associated with not necessarily bunkering down, but um, for example, as I talk about with Jeffrey, with self-publishing, uh, academic submissions, uh, getting chapters into books, working on your own projects more, doing things which basically strengthen the community without any kind of external cost or um, Things which will basically strengthen the community even through uh, what the, what's termed this winter period. And I think what this creates internally is an internal perception of vibrant community, but actually communicating that outside the artificial life community. I tried to distill in what I'm describing as the value problem. And the value problem specifically stated is what is the value of artificial life for an external observer? How do we actually translate all this energy um, that we put in as individuals into artificial life into something which is accessible to industry, to academia more directly, and certainly, obviously, uh, the hobbyist community as well. My sense of the value problem is that artificial life is fundamentally about complexity. What we do in these simulations is we find uh, very rich, very complex environments and we create a language associated with actually describing this complexity. So in my own writing, I write on vastly complex systems. There is no adequate philosophy associated with vastly complex systems currently. You have these um, ideas like the Singularity Institute and various kind of futurist ideas that don't really translate to actually understanding contemporary vastly complex systems. But I think artificial life developers have a very interesting insight into vastly complex systems, which actually translates to the philosophy of these systems. So certainly my, my limited answer to the value problem has been exploring the philosophy associated with vastly complex systems and writing on that. I think we also need to bring the discussion to us. Certainly with regards to modern journalism and the way that these things are framed, you will see press releases associated with external entities that basically the artificial life community has a lot to say about. So it's our responsibility to actively um, pester, get out there, uh, talk to journalists, uh, send emails, make points, uh, email, compare and contrast to articles, and be very active, certainly in the public sphere, in terms of the idea of re-educating people about the artificial life community. Historically, we had the likes of Dawkins, we had the likes of Douglas Adams, we had various names that were very well known in their particular areas, who were also talking about the artificial life community as a kind of adjunct thing. It's now important as kind of individual artificial life developers that we bring the discussion to us. The two things that I think we can impact, I talked about this, is the need for a new rich philosophy, a kind of uh, a physics and a metaphysics fundamentally that we can describe, um, particularly in the social sciences, but I think also in the physical sciences, and this is the kind of interchange between the two, ways of uh, looking at problems, approaching uh, things where the simulations actually give feedback to the science. And I think this is what's very interesting currently is that these two are almost interchangeable um, in terms of the analysis. But in terms of the rich mathematics, this really is a way of understanding uh, vastly complex systems which creates a shared language, which can almost link um, the natural sciences and the social sciences because within these computer simulations, within these artificial life simulations, we don't have uh, a, a prescribed resolution uh, that exists in, in real-world systems. And this way, we can link things that could be uh, existing in, in simulations of very small systems to things which clearly exist in very large systems as well. So I think these two things are interchangeable. Obviously, um, Stephen Guerin at Redfish uh, has provided the most interesting discussion in the biotalized to date associated with this. And this is an idea, really, of... Um, 
almost mapping agent interaction back into some kind of mathematical language, which really needs to, I think, probably happen in the next decade. Artificial life developers are really critical to this discussion. And this is very much in terms of a broader understanding. And really, when you look at um, Nick Bostrom, for example, who's, who's my favourite nemesis in philosophy, as someone who writes about simulations and the kind of things that we do in the artificial life community in a very abstract sense. So it really is our responsibility as simulators to publish in both these areas and not necessarily to pick fights, but certainly dissect what is coming out of these areas with regards to the knowledge that we have. So in terms of actually translating what we have um, into all these areas, I think time has been our ally and will continue to be our ally. And this is really, I started my slides with a book that was published in 1984. What we are finding currently, and this is kind of an ongoing discussion associated with the philosophy, I feel is almost like a new dark ages. There's an information simplification that is going on currently, which is really chronic. The movement into things like digital books, the loss of paper printing, and the idea of almost the kind of Wikipediaization of information, that basically information will progressively be simplified into smaller and smaller, easier to understand boluses. As we are artificial life developers, we can fight this directly in terms of our understanding and our breadth of understanding. And I think time uh, is our ally in this regard. Um, in terms of actually talking about the complexity, uh, the diversity of things that contribute uh, to various properties. I've talked a little bit about journalism, certainly through my experience with Biota. Um, I think journalism is moving in a very in a very strange direction and certainly the discussion associated with simplification is increasingly the problem with science journalism in particular. It's very difficult to map what we do into contemporary science journalism. Recently there was an article published that went through the Biota Conversations mailing list associated with uh, a fellow uh, finding emergent behaviour in uh, cellular automata simulation and I think what we will find increasingly is journalists that are not even uh, governed by press releases, but really just governed by random bits of information that is recharacterized um, into important information. Certainly Bruce Damer has had the view that we need to actively engage journalists. He has half a dozen journalists that he constantly feeds information to. Um, and certainly you've seen some of that with regards to the publicity associated with the Evo grid. When I see bad articles written by journalists, I contact the journalists and I point them towards Jeffrey's work, I point them towards Gerald Jung's work, I point them towards people in the artificial life community that they can gain benefit from. And I think that's the way that I've done it currently, but we need to be probably proactive uh, considerably more with regards to um, kind of popular science understanding in terms of what we do. Unlike Bruce Damer, and this is the real divergence here, I don't think historical figures are really that beneficial in terms of translating what we're doing currently. My feeling is that the people who have been historical figures who are interacting currently are very valuable, but the kind of names that were associated with the early biota conferences, they won't ask the questions associated with artificial life currently. And the way in which history is kind of translated and things are um, considerably more contemporary uh, in terms of general discussion, referencing historical figures is probably not the way to go um, with regards to the artificial life community. I think there's enough going on. I mean, I've shown you in terms of just the past month with Noble Ape, I think there's enough going on of interest within the artificial life community currently that that could translate very well. Um, so certainly that's the distinction um, in terms of uh, Bruce's perspective and my perspective. 
but I think it is down to us. It's down to the primary simulators. It's down to the uh, communicators, the folks even who are um, listening to the podcasts and other things that we're putting out um, in terms of the advanced users and certainly the, the kind of uh, uh, philosophical users, the people that give uh, phenomenal feedback uh, in terms of the artificial life community development. And really, it's down to us. I mean, we are really the... The, the starting point with regards to this kind of communication. And that's something that I've wanted to kind of strengthen through uh, the biota community as well, is really strengthen the number of people and the interactions. And obviously collaboration is a really strong thing that I've, I've tried to uh, foster as well. I mean, working with, with people like Jeffrey, moving their stuff open source this Friday night, I'll be talking with Steve Grand um, about just that, his own experiences moving a, a relatively large artificial life game uh, open source but I think it's, it's about a, a community, it's about a degree of vibrancy, about a communication collaboration, and certainly that's what I've uh, tried to foster with regards to the Biota community through my editorial ship. Do we have any questions? Yeah, so, so I'm not an AI guy. Mm-hmm. I'm artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but my connection to AI is through complex systems. Mm-hmm. I specialize in the massive scale mm-hmm. uh, behavior. I would say that's an artificial life system by contemporary definition. Yeah. Intelligent agents in a simulated environment is very much an artificial life simulation. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I sense the difference. Because I sense that artificial life is mostly interested in itself. So <laughs> it's not interested in solving problems mm-hmm. or mapping into different fields problems and the insights are very focused on the ecosystem that mm-hmm. it creates. And Do you think that's a historical problem or still a contemporary problem? As much as I see it now actually the current situation, unless you, you tell me that you know about works, uh, work that are carried on that are looking for, to solve problems in, I don't know. So Stephen Gurren at Redfish is the counterexample to that in terms of external funding to actually solve problems associated with population movement, for example, the Venice Canal system. Um, and I think there have been a number of examples of, well, particularly the kind of then between soft artificial life and hard artificial life that has been about solving real-world systems. I think what you'll find with the artificial life community, and some of your criticism is correct, is that we do look in rather than we look out. But also there is a responsibility in terms of people such as yourself to probably prod and instigate artificial life developers looking out as, as much as well. And certainly in terms of interdisciplinary collaboration, the history of artificial life has always been good in terms of having people from outside artificial life say, I have this problem, you know, let's look at this problem. So I guess we can come up with very nice technologies emerging, emerging from your world that can be used in other fields. Mm-hmm. So are you looking at your, for example, Nobel Aid, and to take some parts of it and wrap it and use it in other places. So all the components are extractable. 
And could be used in other places without question. I mean, the, the underlying simulations can be extracted and used in other places without question. Uh, the weather simulation in particular, um, you know, people have asked, can it be used in other places? And it has been. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's in a, it's in a, a form which is very much componentalizable and, and movable. Um, I think the, the problem that you're describing is also to do with the way... I mean, for example, my interaction with Noble Ape is very much about maintenance. It's about day-to-day stuff. It really requires, I mean, people like, you know, the folks at Apple or Bob Mottram or others to come in and give different directions. But certainly I'm not hesitant to accept those directions and take them in the areas that they want to go. It is a two-way mm-hmm. process, though. Um, and certainly I think historically, you're right, the artificial life community has been very much about creating these amazing I, I use the analogy of kind of model rail enthusiasts they're about creating you know very beautiful um small things that you know then the the trains run around the the agents run around and it, it works like that i think increasingly well in order for artificial life, when you talk about intelligent agents as a simulated environment the term artificial life has changed over the past two decades without question it started very much with the kind of cellular automata, very basic things, moved into genetic algorithms, blocky creatures, walkers. Um, Noble Ape, when I started, it wasn't considered an artificial life simulation because this definition of uh, intelligent agent in a simulated environment wasn't really taken on board by the artificial life community. But I think what we see with the artificial life community now, and this is the whole notion of wet, hard and soft, is that it's gone in so many different directions that it's actually expanding. And it's very much, I think, the case in the future that these expansions, well, for example, the wet artificial life community, will be driven by aspects of biochemistry, um, you know, a wide variety of aspects in that direction, obviously robotics. And I think with soft artificial life, there are linkings both with hard and wet, but also with the stuff that you're talking about. And I think we can't have a static definition for artificial life but really, it is through um, external users, potential users, that the definition will expand at the fastest rate. Yeah, yeah I agree. But I think one key element is the funding issue. We don't like to talk about Certainly. And I find it disturbing that somebody like you needs to work on, on time on something so important. I do mildly as well, but it's been my life for the past 14 years. So um, rather than fighting the realities of the circumstance, I mean, I came to the Bay Area very much with the view that Noble Ape would, and I came here based on an early graphics technology that was in Noble Ape that, you know, excited various, um, you know, manufacturers at the time, Apple included, but um, S3 and various other companies. So my vision was initially that the technologies that came out of Noble Ape would be able to sustain me. And certainly my experiences made me realise that that wasn't going to be the case, but the overall development was more important than my sustenance through the development. So... Can can you keep on doing that? That's my question. I've been able to. The times where I've done... For example, ApeScript was done when I moved to the US and I didn't have work. So I have a relationship with the code base where I know if I have periods... um, A lot of the early development was done through work travel, so, for example, the major rewrite and the release of it open source occurred when I was in Stockholm, when I was working for Ericsson, um, and I was writing a C compiler in the day job and doing meetings, and then I had a great degree of freedom in terms of time, 
and I was in a small apartment looking over Stockholm, and basically I could invest my time there. So I agree with you in principle, and I think certainly... The other thing is it's a catch-22 situation because people devalue what you do if it's not your day job as well. So as an artificial life developer, and particularly you know, talking to my employer about coming here and doing these talks and what have you... You, it's the people scratch their heads. You know, you're clearly motivated, intelligent, and doing other things. So why isn't this? So it's a catch twenty two situation. Breaking that um, is a problem that's bigger than us. I think. I think it requires a different kind of perspective, and it's it's throughout technology. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately. You show that has a value to the outside world. Mm. Well, here's the interesting thing. Through releasing it open source, it has a value to Apple and it has a very demonstrable value to Intel, and they don't pay for that. So the whole, there's a paradox in open source as well, which means that, for example, my eating, meeting with Apple today, uh, Dr. Ernie said to me, you've only been here, what, once in the past 10 years? Well, one of the reasons I've only been here once in the past 10 years is it's expensive to come here. And if Apple and Intel are using Noble Ape and distributing it with every Mac that they sell and what have you, and they get the benefits from that, but I don't get any financial benefit from that. So there is a problem with regards to open source in that too. And really the whole open source model associated with the idea that you'll be able to sell services really breaks down with this kind of stuff as well. But at the same point, releasing it open source means people at Apple and Intel get to use it and it kind of perpetuates as well. So it's a complex situation, but the financials associated with releasing things open source can't be underscored enough in this kind of discussion because what it creates is really a circumstance where your work is highly valued but not paid for. And that, in my own experience, has translated to a number of really interesting situations, like the fact that I haven't been to the Bay Area for the past decade, basically. Um, I've talked um, particularly to Dr. Ernie at Apple about that problem progressively, um, particularly early on in my discussions with him that I thought Apple and other companies needed to embody a greater sense of understanding of the value of open source. And that has not translated very well. I think the reality is basically when the dot-com crash happened, open source was a means of these companies for basic survival. What they got through Linux and what they got for free through these things without contributing back to a development community really maintain their survival. Um, and that is down not just to me, but obviously tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of engineers that contribute to open source projects. So the whole notion of value associated with these things, it's a complex one. Yeah. In an ideal world, you'd be absolutely right. In the world that we live in currently, you've got open source, you've got all these other complexities. Uh, and I well. So if, if you get if you let it for free, mm -hmm. they won't pay. pay Clearly. Them. So the theory is that they're supposed to pay for added extras, or they're supposed to pay for your knowledge, and that's the translation which has always been problematic. The one other issue you have to consider is that with it being open source and openly developed you get participation from people who would not otherwise Th that's, yeah. participate with it if it was closed or Certainly. proprietary yeah. and locked away. So, I mean, it, it's a trade-off yeah, to, yeah. to who can openly and willingly you know, work with you on it as well. Yeah. 
you made yeah, I think it was the right decision. I wouldn't yeah. be standing in front of you doing this presentation oh, if it hadn't been yeah, so. Maybe you should consider on top of that. Mm -hmm. I think there are value-added extras. I think the potential, particularly for the web server version, in terms of uh, a knowledge base and these kind of things. But the real difficulty is that we haven't really translated the value problem correctly with artificial life in a broader context. It's not just specifically relating to my experiences with Noble it, it traverses the community. I think there are lots of really interesting development which should be funded, either commercially, academically, through industry, what have you. Um, but just isn't currently. And part of that is informing, informing the broader community, basically, about what's going on. But I also think, as you've described, there is a responsibility for uh, external potential users, be they academic or what have you, to start considering actual value yeah. and translating it back to developers. Yeah, uh, there is a, right now there is an interesting white paper, Dampas white paper, that can be, that can it can use something that comes from artificial life. Certainly. Biological inspired inspired algorithm mm -hmm. or collaboration. Mm -hmm. so, so. Mm -hmm. so maybe you can you can think about something that you can get out from uh, Nobel Aid. Certainly. I, I think certainly, I mean, I work, you know, 50 plus hour weeks surviving. And the time that I have to think about Nopalate, the time that I have to work on Biota, all these things are, are adjunct to that. I s still write chapters. I still try to get published and these kind of things. Um, so that's always been... Currently, my waiting for chapter writing has been slightly higher than I probably would want it to be. Um, but I think there's some benefit in actually getting out to students as well. So, yeah, unfortunately, the time waiting thing is just an ongoing... And it affects us all, basically. Um, but my my view currently is that particular chapters are very productive. Um, in terms of funding these kind of things, I find it very speculative and the speculative aspect of it. I had an experience, for example, uh, in Australia where I got funding through the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organisation, which was pulled away at the last minute, so having gone through the whole process, because... Basically, they wanted to take aspects of what was the early Noble Eight development and move it internally for... I, I didn't think the grant money was basically worth that. And it was additional requirements that they added after the fact. So my experience early on with developing Noble Eight was investing a lot of time in that kind of stuff and getting limited rewards. Even the Australian Film Commission grant, whilst it was relatively small, uh, had additional political nonsense, which I didn't really need at the time. So my feeling is that if I'm doing this after hours already, yeah. I, I want to minimise the nonsense, basically, yeah. and maximise what's actually productively coming out, which really comes back to um, you know, people such as yourself who may have interest in using it, doing some of that like, work with the view that you know, appreciative of the current circumstance. Yeah. We should discuss this white paper. Maybe we can do something mm -hmm. together and get cool. you funded. Cool. That would be cool. Great. My wife would like that. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Um, quick question. Uh, just from the, the coding of uh, the Noble Age simulation, <laughs> are you basically doing things in a single thread or in, like, multiple threads? So? Uh, and, and, and how, how is that being done? Originally, it was single thread. Mm -hmm. 
Um, certainly, um, Rick and his friends at Apple uh, implemented multi-threads. I've used some of that. The stuff that they're doing at Intel currently is almost like atomizing threads or atomizing the processing and distributing that. Um, there are many different models. I, in my day-to-day -day development, I don't concentrate very heavily on that. There's a component of the simulation that I'm wanting to move to that. There's a kind of open thread interface that I've developed, which is used more heavily by Intel. Um, with regards to the web server, it will be more thread-oriented, but I think the paradigm associated with simulation is still being defined. I like, very much like the idea of um, kind of atomic simulation elements that are distributed not only over many processes, but over potentially networks. Uh, and that's a slightly different model than what I'm doing in Nova Lake currently, but it's in that kind of division stage. So um, short answer, not as much as I'd like currently, but yes, more for the future. Have you had to deal with like race conditions? Certainly. So the idea of these atomized simulation elements is basically it's supposed to remove the race conditions by creating elements which don't have those race conditions. There are a number of components within Noble Ape. The cognitive simulation is a good example of this uh, ape script as well. We have multiple apes basically running in parallel, so you have no race conditions aside from I interactions. So the interactions have to be then separated, and there are a variety of thread models, a couple of which are implemented in Noble Ape, which enable this to be stacked and, and processed. So, yeah, the race conditions components, I use... Um, I'm increasingly sympathetic to non-blocking synchronization. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that technology, but it eliminates a lot of the kind of traditional lock um, issues. Um, and I think probably the final implementation of Noble Ape will be based in non-blocking synchronization done in a very scalable manner. Um, I'd like to say the stuff that Intel was doing was in that line, but they're very much focused on the particular riches that they're scratching currently. Um, but my hope is in the future, all that stuff will kind of be realigned. But it's kind of an ongoing process. Can you give a little background? On, when the initial multi-threading happened, um, it was sort of a brute force. You know, we had multiple processes. We should be using them, dividing up the workload amongst them. And it worked reasonably well uh, to begin with due to most of the simulation not having a huge amount of interaction, or at least there are sections that are weak to break out. Later versions, um, in fact, there's some presentations on this at, at WWC later, um, where it really turned out that the problem wasn't so much being able to use multiple threads, but rather that the synchronization points for things like drawing uh, the actual visualizations or, or rendezvousing for some of the, the events that occurred was the limiting factor and in fact you got into this counterproductive situation where you had four threads and in order for you to do a significant amount of work such that you weren't basically pestering the scheduler of the, the OS, you were batching sufficient work that the display itself became you know, uh, very uh, non-interactive. Right? Right, right. You have to compute for a while to actually utilize the, the process effectively. So the atomized-based work sort of came out of this idea of, well, what if we can actually continue doing the work, and even once you have the results, start doing the display, but continue everybody else in parallel, reducing a lot of the synchronization. Okay. Let's say that I'll give you access to a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. super mm -hmm. You can do that? Bruce has one of those. Mm -hmm. He has a few, yeah. How would your Nobel Ape would be different in such a 
in terms of hardware. in terms of mapping it onto a hardware with a sick of can, computer. Can you get something more uh, interesting or more robust? Certainly, I think uh, it's been done architecture by architecture currently, and certainly what Rick was talking about was really in terms of in the future making it more scalable in that regard. Um, early on. There were offers uh, of supercomputers, and I think there were early versions in Lab simulation that were maybe not run on craze, but something of similar uh, ilk of the time. Uh, and, it, I mean, it was designed originally to be very scalable in that regard. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's doable, and you'd see improved results. So, do you have some insights that resolve from... So the example I used to give was with regards to implicit genetics and the idea of life expectancy. And these two things were things that were not initially explicitly programmed but came out of running the simulation. With the stuff that Bob Montram is doing currently, there is a lot more emergent phenomena coming out of it. And I think really it's based on the idea of creating a almost like a palette initially, and then whatever comes out of that in the future. So continuously things come out like that. Um, the previous example was with regards to genetics, length of time, uh, that the apes remain uh, older ape relationships, but this is becoming increasingly more explicit and more kind of uh, uh, fragmented almost into different things with the stuff that Bob Mottram is doing. So um, really watch the space in terms of new emergence from this. Uh, but yeah, constantly. Certainly. Very early on in the simulation, it's amazing how little you need to simulate in order to get that uh, out of something like this. And certainly that was my experience with Noble 8. That's interesting. That's was the, Exactly. You need a very... And, um, also with regards to... I can, I can relate. Certainly. And also with regards to biological simulation and scalability associated with that, the interactions of plants and animal species. The biological simulation is quantum mechanical simulation. There was originally a predator-prey version of that as well. It filtered in through that. And in terms of understanding how you construct complex systems, and also this came through the talk at Intel, the slides have been removed. In terms of the uh, cognitive algorithm, the weightings that came from that were very much based on the kind of predator-prey scalings as well, which showed um, stability conditions that came through complexity. So there were various properties in terms of once you got to nine species, 12 species, the scaling was less affected in terms of the interactions. So in those kind of things, yeah, that was early on as well. Um, and you get all this kind of stuff. And this fills back to what I was saying about complexity. That even through very basic simulations, you get out information associated with complexity, which I think is very applicable to other aspects of science. Um, would it be possible uh, if you could uh, run the uh, Noble Ape simulation and kind of show us through the graphical? Uh, can I do a quick uh, description of it? I Certainly. I, I've run it before, but just, you know, in, in watching that, there's a lot of things I, I didn't quite understand what was going on. Okay. Um, do you have access to the internet, Jeffrey? I don't, but you're, you're I'm, Yeah, I'm not sure the Windows version is downloadable, uh, okay. how accessible it is, but I can try. Because so much has gone in recently, let's... Uh, it's only 102 kilobytes? Yeah. It's very small, and that was another thing that was important early on, was basically getting the most out of every aspect of the simulation. So, um, 
I think A-life applications should be very small. Yeah. The, uh, the idea is that both you have code reuse, but also... Um, I guess it probably depends on how much data you well, need for it. Okay. Uh, some things might require more than others. Probably the more game-like it is, the more, more data you'll want to have music and you know, yeah. pre-processed graphics. Um. Okay, so this is the Novolite simulation, as it is currently. And what you have here, um, firstly you have an Apple bug, which is originally it was a full window, but the moniker and rendering of um, OpenGL uh, was problematic, so I had to move the interface into, into two windows. What you see here is the cognitive simulation, which is running here. Uh, you have the noble apes, as they exist on the island. You have communication going on between two apes here. So you have the red dots are apes. Uh, there are actually two there are apes that are visible and apes that are not visible by the selected ape. So... It's difficult to see on this screen where the distinction between the reds isn't particularly good here, but there's a kind of darker red and a lighter red, mm -hmm. which you can sort of see. So what you have here is the weather simulation is mapped here. So you've got currently a lot of cloud, not much rain. Uh, let's turn the weather simulation off. So what's the scale of that? Uh, um, this, is, uh, this is a 256 by 256 map. And roughly each of these... Um, the other thing is the graphics are all, um, it's not OpenGL, it's all hand-rolled graphics as well. So, um, so how far each eight from uh, what's the distance between the Okay, so each of these pixels represents roughly um, 50 metres. These are very close together, they're probably within 10 metres of each other. These they, are probably... I, I paused it. Oh, <laughs> when they move, it's uh, it's considerably more vibrant. But I just wanted to get through. Let me take the weather simulation off just to go through the the details here. Uh, gosh, let's okay. So you still have the apes communicating. Uh, that's kind of real time flash. Mm -hmm. But um, so you have what quite a large population here uh, relative to the initial simulation. What probably about twenty thirty apes. Um, you have a selected ape, which you can pick other apes to select. And each of them have unique cognitive simulations, as you can see. They're all slightly different. So in the cognitive simulation, what does each of the uh, lit... So this is a contour map of what's going on internally within the cognitive simulation. There were various visualisation techniques that I tried in terms of describing what was going on with the cognitive simulation. Originally, there was like a three-dimensional scan that cut through the brain and saw um, different areas, um, but this was the visualisation method that I ended up with. The, there's a kind of background to almost like a language that comes through the cognitive simulation in terms of understanding the various... So um, when they're particularly fearful, uh, other interactions, also the sleep state interactions, obviously this is an awake ape moving around currently. Uh, but the cognitive simulation is, is kind of processed in real time. Um, you have the brain cycles per second here, the, the metric that came through the Apple development originally. Uh, and, you know, the noble apes are, are wandering over the biological environment. 
interacting with other noble apes, and obviously there's, there's impact on the cognitive simulation. The sleeping currently, this is the different mapping, the awake state to the sleep state. So maintaining a lot more of the cognitive information, this is the difficulty with regards to showing graphically, because you can't see the, the full textures of what's going on here. You're just seeing kind of contour map shimmering um, associated with that. Uh, but this is through the sleep state. Uh, How long do they sleep? Uh, it's based on the daylight. So um, they are awakened when at dawn uh, and they sleep through the night, basically. There's a potential in the future for additive effects like campfires and these kind of things. And also, um, if they're in the water, they don't sleep, obviously. They're in kind of a drowned condition where they're trying to get out of the water. Um, but typically they sleep through, uh, through the night and it's, it's daylight-based. There are other additions, like when they're rained on, for example, Bob Mottram's tides, um, they'll occasionally sleep on the beaches and then get washed over by the tides and these kind of things. So there are all these kind of interactions that occur as well. Um, but, yeah, typically just night and day. Can they die yet? Certainly. So um, death through... Done by drowning? A combination of factors. Okay. Uh, drowning... Uh, potentially through fighting, I don't think currently, I'm not sure with Bob Mottram's changes, there are certainly energy effects, but I think there are two, there are a number of aspects of fighting. There's just, I guess, a notion of play fighting, a notion of kind of more squabbling, and then basically fighting towards fighting to the death. They typically won't fight to the death, like a lot of primates, they don't get that far. The, the idea is basically scarring and doing things to rivals rather than actually fighting to the death. They can certainly get in a, a state where they've been injured sufficiently where they will die. So that's one thing that's being followed, um, but not currently. The other thing that they die from is, um, it's not really old age, but basically their ability to heal and these things change over time. So they do have kind of old age effects that affect them. And they're more likely, there is also a kind of natural causes element to the simulation as well um, that allows for kind of natural causes death. Uh, can they uh, start? Yes. So this is something which um, it will come through Bob Mottram's uh, work, no doubt. Um, it was something that I thought of originally, uh, particularly with regards to transmissions, yeah. uh, but not in the current simulation. I think that's something which... Uh, this which, something that's interesting. Certainly. I think what interests... What would be really interesting with Noble Ape is... Uh, this isn't a particularly good landscape if I create another landscape, but the the ability to have um, almost like tribes develop in different areas, uh, and in that circumstance, particularly with regards to immunity and these kind of things, it would be very interesting to get certain tribes that are immune to particular viruses, other tribes that are immune to other things, and the interaction between those. Um, if I'm still recording audio, this is going out, and I think it'll certainly be a feature in the near future uh, because that's you know, a kind of no-brainer feature. So this, there were elements like that through the original simulation, but Bob Mottram's changes are really moving in that direction more in terms of solidifying that in something that can be tracked. Uh, I think what happens, if you look at this kind of discussion associated with social networks, is what happens is implicit trust through that, and basically um, you form communities of trust through that where um, there are instances where if you have a certain group of trust and then uh, one of those squabbles with another one that that can break within the trust groups as well so what will happen I think with the what we're calling eight book in terms of that will create a, a, a very strong kind of trust engine um, that will allow those kind of interactions to be represented graphically in a meta simulation. You talked about the politics within the 
AI artificial life community. So originally, there was okay. If you talk about early emergent phenomena, there was an early emergent phenomena associated with the older apes. And there was almost a kind of... The, the tribes could almost form based on the older apes as well. I think what we'll find with Ape Book is probably that will be formalised. So rather than just dots moving around and checking ages and working out that kind of thing and working areas and these kind of things, a lot of that will be formalised coming into the future. And my hope is that through something like Ape Book you will actually see that in a graphical form. Um, so yes, both historically and also I think more solidified through things like Ape Book. When you when you talked about your narrative engine, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I was thinking about sort of the work that that a lot of the stuff that I've done, as you know, is very visual oriented. Mm-hmm. And but there's so much stuff going on here. In fact, when I did Gene Pool, I specifically didn't want too much going on because mm-hmm. I wanted anything that's going on in the simulation is clearly visual. But you've got so much going on here, so much psychology mm-hmm. and stuff. That the narrative engine almost seems like a good output for that. that that's what I feel. That you, you, you couldn't possibly create a visual experience that captures the whole thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, Part of this is to do with moving from four windows to two windows. And my real concern with regards to moving to two windows, basically this information was in a separate window and this information was in a separate window. So moving it to two windows really overwhelmed this um, in terms of the interface. Uh, but I agree with you. I think the narrative engine... What interests me, I have an iPad version that I'm working on currently, is the ability to have narrative engine output in the iPad version and also to be able to select apes and have the ape script that you can actively debug. I think the text interface to that through something like the iPad, where it's all all in one interface, is going to be very powerful. Um, So my interest is kind of scrolling narrative engine feeding back into this too. Um, You were talking before about having... um Graphical representations of the uh, um, biological organisms and maybe the apes. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you thinking about it in this no. Uh, view? No. no. The, this will be a completely different view. Okay. And I think the whole notion of having a web server interface, actually, an ape died just then. <laughs> the whole notion of having it in. Two dice so far. Yeah, yeah. The whole notion of having it in a. Um, in a new interface is a completely new interface. Okay. It won't look anything like this. In fact, I want physical renderings of the apes. I want the landscape looking proper. I want the... This is the... Um, as came up a, in a grey thumb historically, as put on YouTube, this is very much the historical legacy of the Noble Ape simulation in terms of this particular interface. What's going on behind this, as Jeffrey notes, is too rich to really be described in graphics like this. So... My background is very much with regards to roll your own graphics, put all this stuff together, get it out there. But I'd like increasingly to be less responsible for the graphics and more responsible for the active simulation and pass the graphics out to people who do have a strong... Particularly in terms of the first-person interaction, one of the things that interested me with OpenSim in particular was the idea that you could um, enter an environment where you embodied a noble ape and you didn't know how many of the other noble apes were humans and how many were simulated entities. And I think that's a very powerful um, metaphor for kind of the future of our life in terms of having these environments where it's sufficiently rich that you don't actually know the background motivations of whether they're human or whether they're simulated. Um, I think Douglas Davis was the fellow we had on Biota who talked about that. Um, that's certainly something I followed. What about quantitative results? Uh, I would love to see some graphs of 
So Bob Montrum has that for the web server currently. He has that in the web server. I don't have the graphics for that, but that's a big thing that he has in the web server is in terms of uh, population spread. So you have so many properties mm -hmm. that you can measure. Yeah, certainly. So certainly. So the web server currently does that very beautifully. Um, and my feeling is probably Bob will allow for almost everything to be tracked. He has, um, if you, if you, the only way he puts this out currently is both on the web server that he maintains live and also through Facebook. He's constantly publishing graphs now that is coming out of the web server. Um, and certainly I, 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 think, I think we're all friends on Facebook. So I will like and put out some of the graphs that he comes through. But the population densities, he's done maps of parasites and honour and population graphs and how grooming has actually improved the life expectancy of particular apes. I mean, basically he's getting into that richness now and doing graphical representations of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I, I was uh, meeting with some uh, intern at the NASA with the My Mars simulation, mm -hmm. and it has a similar problem, is that there's so much going on in the background that has not been visually represented to the user, mm. at least in an intuitive way, that uh, in describing it, it seemed, you know, there, there seemed to be so much going on on the underlying simulation that she wasn't aware of before just by playing around with it on her own. I'm, I'm betting there's a lot in, uh, in uh, Noble Ape uh, similar to that. Exactly. And I think really the narrative engine is part of that, the new means of visualization is part of that, the graphical output's part of that. But it's really something that's going on very much now and into the, into the future. So what is your interface for somebody to play with? So I want to change the number. Okay. So Bob Mottram uses the command line interface. He has a command line version which he uses for the web server art. I use software uh, compilation. There is ApeScript for the scripting. And there is also a file output. There are two kinds of file output. There is this XML phenotype, which shows you in, in an XML format. And then there is an underlying file format, which now contains, which can be tuned to contain aspects of the cognitive simulation, basically all the variables associated with the underlying apes, and they can then be reparsed. So um, in terms of my own debugging, I will typically take output save it in a file, go through the file, do the analysis as it with that. And because the XML output, that's easily parsed too. Can log something to my computer? Does it write something? Certainly. Um, the Bob Mottram, um, the Bob Mottram stuff yeah. from this? Oh, to see what it looks like? I'm not sure specifically with this version. There was a bug in the Windows version. The Mac version will give all of that. I'm not confident with regards to this. So it would be nice to just change something and see different options. Mm -hmm, certainly. Uh, that can be done. I'm not confident with this version in terms of the... Um... Ah, it works. Okay. Um, let's pull on the desktop again. This is an earlier one, but uh, test example. No, this is, um, this is the uh, raw format. I'm not sure if I've got XML output turned on for the Windows version for this particular one. No. Uh, but the Mac version, it has output, and the, the later Windows version does. Uh, no light with. So this, Bob Mottram's changes, these are a lot more richer, but this is the, the basic output. Um, simulation is just defined in a signature of version number. Version number here is wrong. Uh, land uh, has a time associated with it, a date associated with it. Uh, which is in 
days and I think centuries and initial generators which create the simulated land environment. These have been greatly expanded in, in Bob Bottrom's version, but this is the location and vector, the direction facing in 256, the speed of the ape, the energy in the ape, uh, initial identification number which has been expanded with regards to Bob Mottram's genome, the date of birth here at zero, uh, the fact that the ape is currently speaking, and each of the apes have an internal random seed, which was very important with distribution. So for each ape, you have this structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, much more detail with Bob Mottram's output now, and this really, um, I should have had a, a compiled version of that too. A lot more interesting information, um, and particularly in terms of the XML output. I mean, if you've got an existing XML parser, this was the kind of simulation file that's maintained. Uh, but anyway, so that's what that comes. And similarly, you have ApeScript as well. Uh, I think I include it with ApeScript examples. So. Uh, Ah, uh, this has got to be opened. This is um, got to be opened in WordPad. Yeah. So ApeScript is very simple in this situation. This is just seeding random brain values. This is basically just explaining um, is visible is a good one. Uh, brain flash is another good one. But very simple scripting initially. I really should put in Pedro Ferreira's. Um, Cognitive simulation as well, but these are just initial introductions to ApeScript. Just putting initial brain values, creating a flash, continuing making sure the ape maintains energy. Um, very simple ApeScript examples. Uh, but ApeScript itself, uh, simple language with a detailed interface into the simulation, and certainly with Bob Fotram's changes, all of that has expanded in ApeScript. I can show you. Uh, very simple language. Uh, but yeah, all the all the kind of standard operators that you'd expect, C-like, uh, but the um, the functions are actually variable pointers, so you can construct a wide variety of interesting things uh, through the functions. These are the current interface. Bob much has expanded this um, quite a bit, but randomization uh, you can create and calculate vector angles. Uh, Output based on numerical land height associated with text. You can get out the time, the date, the weather. Uh, and these are variables that come out through ApeScript that can be accessed. Uh, beings, current being, line of sight, which was an important one. Just accessing various bits of information, external apes, linking that up is visible. Uh, obviously accessing all the aspects of the biology. Uh, and all this is expanded uh, with Bob's changes. Uh, there's also a debugging component, which is really interesting with ApeScript because it shows you both the code output and the values that are going through the code, which is very useful um, in terms of understanding uh, you know, what's going on at a specific time. These the various errors that come out of ApeScript. And I have also, what was originally called kind of extreme ApeScript, that goes through the basic uses of it to do more interesting stuff, um, creating uh, you know, various examples using... Um, Using the brain as memory was, so here, using the brain as memory, um, explaining the existing cognitive simulation, how to get it just as memory, and then the kind of stuff that you can do with it as memory. Again, this is part of the uh, manual that's kind of provided with every um, release of the simulation, so really just kind of sparking people's interest with regards to ApeScript. Uh, but anyway, that's that. Yeah. What about phrase transitions? Have you find out? 
interesting face you, you should see many face positions. Certainly, certainly. Um, in terms of what aging or what, what specifically? A wide variety of aspects of the simulation? Uh, I believe you'll see face uh, transition in the social behavior. Mm -hmm. So, uh, collaboration, uh, fighting, crowding, mm -hmm. crowding. Mm -hmm. So, Bob Mantra's uh, changes in particular have. Visually, the only way you can see it is with regards to movement interaction, obviously, but through the output of graphs and things like that, you can certainly see that. And in terms of hard barriers, where you can see that they're either breaking the entry of a phase, or you can certainly see that too. So, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. And the interaction, I mean, initially when he just added grooming, grooming was enough to create those kind of, uh, those kind of grooming and honour. So you have this uh, uh, side distance, what was it? Mm -hmm. Line of sight. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I, I believe that you have also facilitations there. Mm -hmm. So from, uh, from a given uh, distance, nothing happens, and then giving a little bit more... Certainly. Yeah, dramatic. certainly. And I think also eyesight on that, I mean, in terms of the genetic interactions as well, will be interesting things that come through that. Any more questions? Well, thank you. <laughs> This is, this is my first public lecture in the past decade, so the ability to actually talk about Noble Ape in this kind of format is really a luxury, and perhaps more associated with some of the problems that we were discussing earlier. But, yeah, the ability to talk about Noble Ape is really a luxury, so thank you. Very impressive. Thank you. Thank you.